money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Some people use it as the key to reach their goals. And some people use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it and how to grow it. For years, women have been telling their beauty stories, their success stories, their health stories. Now, we want to talk to women about their money stories. Welcome, Welcome to, to Tilly Money. money. And money's not something that you should worship. You know, money's not something that you should chase. Um, but money is something that if you succeed in understanding money in life, it opens up choices for you. And what a wonderful thing it is to have choice. Such a good radio voice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So... Today we have Maureen Jordan, who is the founder and CEO of Tilly Money, the CEO of Switzer Financial Group and the part owner of Rush Magazine. Initially making her start in law, Maureen and her husband Peter Switzer pivoted to small business to start their own company. Twenty odd years later, Switzer Financial Group owns divisions of media, publishing and financial services. Maureen was inducted into the Australian Business Women's Hall of Fame and is continually forging her own path through the world of business. Welcome to Tilly Money, Maureen. Hello, Claire. It's good to be talking to you. <laughs> so this is a question that might stump some people, but I just find it nice for our guests to reframe themselves in, in their own success. So Maureen, who are you? Oh, very, very deep and very long question. Um, Claire, and every year I age, it becomes more complicated, <laughs> but um, who am I? That's a good question. Well, I have two names. I always say to people, two names, but only one personality. Mm -hmm. um, the other one I keep very, very much under wraps. But look, I'm a woman, um, obviously. Um, I, I'm a very determined woman. I was the daughter of two fabulous people. I um, was given a great education. I certainly came from a humble home. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot, but my father and mother were just determined to get us all educated. And uh, they had five daughters and two sons, and they gave equal weight on the education of my of their daughters as they did to their sons and uh, gave us every opportunity. Some of us didn't take it, um, probably as much as they could have. Um, but uh, I was just always driven because I saw their values and I basically, at the end of the day, I saw them give up so much that I really wanted to make sure that I was giving back too. Yep. And so I was a goody-goody two-shoes, you know, I, um, because I didn't have a lot when I eventually got to school and found all these wonderful things called books and pencils and, you know, blackboards. And, you know, this is, you know, quite a while ago, different <laughs> different, um, you know, to what, say, my little grand, five-year-old granddaughter goes through today with school. But um, look, I loved it. You know, for me, it was a way that um, I was at home. I was the last child, as I said, home with mum. Um, loved the radio. My grandmother lived with us as well, but I didn't have a lot of things that I could really do. Um, it was just a wonderland for me. And I was four and a half at the time. So, so you've always had a passion around publishing and media. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you pick that up, that goes way back to four and a half, less than four and a half I was really. So where did you learn about money mostly growing up? Always loved learning. Um, and I got it from my mum. I just saw mum having to manage budgets, you know. They, they never had any debt, no credit cards. 
you know, they bought a house, paid it off religiously, paid every school fee, you know, did everything right, no credit at all. And uh, I just used to watch her. And uh, my grandmother was a tailor. And so they were often around the dining room table together. And being the youngest, even I have memories, you know, even before school of, you know, mum just, you know, counting numbers and um, grandma just, you know, tipping in, um, um, putting in her tuppence worth, I should say. Dad didn't really manage the money. Mum stayed home. Um, Dad went out and earned it. And then mum just made sure it stretched. And I got those lessons very early. Mm. So she was a big part of how you view money now and your kind of money mindset, how you manage your finances? Yeah, certainly it was embedded in in me because of mum. I mean, when I look back, you know, it was admirable what she did. Um, Dad dad earned a good wage, but it was only one wage. And uh, and mum was just too busy. She would have loved to have worked, you know, before she she um, left work and at the time she was in that generation of women and as soon as she got married and then you know baby came along she's catholic so nine months later the baby came along um but uh you had to give up your job and mum just stayed at home and uh, and worked really hard at home and was highly involved you know in the community in the church did everything you know to have a very rich life but before she did that she worked and basically ran a wholesale um grocery chain and uh, there was a CEO at the top, but, you know, mum very modestly and very politely said, you know, that I basically was the de facto CEO. So um, she taught me um, through, not deliberately sat down and taught me um, whatever, but it was all through example. Mm. And, uh, you know, I um, I just remember that, um, you know, she used to look for bargains, you know. She paid bills on time. She didn't run up credit. It was just... Um, it was just all these examples of balance more than anything. Yeah. She sounds like a very strong female role model. Um, I did want to bring up as well, you once wrote a story that I've read of yours that it's one of my favourites mm. um, about how your dad growing up always told you you are the equal of any man. Oh, yeah. Um, and how in doing this, he actually did you a great disservice. Mm. Can you tell us about that story? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, yeah, you haven't shown me that one for a while, but if I can remember, I mean, you know, he was um, amazing, but he used to say to me, um, you're my champion, and he'd say, you're as good as any man, Maureen, always remember that. One the disservice he did, though, was... You kind of forgot to say to me that you're as good as any woman. <laughs> so yeah. I used to feel that, you know, I was in the top class, you know, I did get a lot of, you know, awards and, you know, I got a scholarship and all that kind of stuff because I thought I'm as good as anybody when it comes to my brain, you know, my ability to compete, my ability to engage in sport, you know, and I saw men in that area. So I'm as good as you, John, you know, so I'll either equal you are good better than you but I wasn't really used to comfortable with this world of women and at the time um, you know I did my um, the final years of my high school um, you know year 11 and 12 and it was the early 70s and so um, there was still a lot of emphasis for women on you know beauty and you know poise and glamour and you know, conversation that probably was, they didn't probably really want to talk about. My class group did, but, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, the, it was kind of a distractive kind of talk. And I didn't know a lot about that because mum never wore makeup, you know, she never played the game, so to speak. And and so I used to feel really insecure. Like, I, Claire, I used to feel really insecure in a hairdresser's. Yes. And it's taken me years, you know, only because I found a fabulous... Um, hairdresser and it is a bloke but 
I just didn't know what to talk about. I didn't like looking at myself in the mirror. Not that I wasn't, you know, worthy of seeing in the yeah. mirror, but I was just uncomfortable in things that at the time were the domain of women and a comfort zone for women, whereas my comfort zone was talking about history or language or stuff like that, which, you know, that was what I was good and competitive at. So, yeah. I'm sure a lot of women can relate to that experience. There is so often that feeling that in order to focus on the academic or any other interests that you have, you have to push away your feminine side. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, it was. you're right. I never really thought of it that way. But you're pushing it away because to be good at anything, you have to give it your focus and your commitment. There are only so many hours in the day. You know, I'm a great poetry lover, so I just, I remember that I did a piece when um, I was at university and it was about uh, something to do with um, uh, the Russian Revolution. It was a debate between um, Trotsky, God, I haven't thought of this for years, <laughs> and uh, two schools of thought, you know, um, at the time, just prior to the Russian Revolution. So I always like to do things differently, and it was all about the great debates in Russia. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, this beautiful poem that I absolutely love by William Blake, who's a favourite of mine, it talks about without contrary, is there no progression? Mm -hmm. And so I have to do things differently. So I pulled out that poem and stuck it in my, my answer to, um, to this essay question, yeah. you know, and I can, was comparing the, what Blake meant by controversy and how you should never suppress, you know, debate and controversy. And that was a problem in all societies because the ideal is that you, you debate everything and everyone has the right to. And uh, so here am I, you know, throwing my time into all of that. And then my boyfriend would knock on the door and I've got rollers in my hair and no makeup on and you know so I'm I'm half staged because I love you know appearance yeah. but I'm so busy you know doing what my brain loves and you know I want to do this great piece of work not just throw anything to it. I ended up getting a high distinction for that oh. that essay too <laughs> but but I don't think the boy when the boyfriend looked at me it's like what the hell yeah. you know so yeah it's about time as you quite rightly said mm. and focus and I, my focus was more on other things yeah so at, at this time in your life, as the head of many companies and, you know, you've worked your way through law and publishing and um, financial advising, um, what has kind of inspired you to start Tilly Money? I've always been aware, Claire, that um, the women are disadvantaged. Um, the financial world is largely male-dominated. I mean, there are great women coming to the fore you know, you've had Gail Kelly, um, boss of Westpac. You have lots of people who um, are becoming role models for other women. You know, that's happening, you know, increasing numbers um, day by day, but still not enough. Um, I know that growing up in this business world that I've grown up with, running my own business was a great escape for me because I would have, um, you know, I'm a solicitor by profession and, you know, there were a lot of people, men encouraged me to be a barrister and there were some opportunities around for even females to go and be magistrates at the time, even straight from being a solicitor to a magistrate. A um, couple of things got in my way and I'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> and, uh, but I've always been aware, Dad told me I was as good as any man, so I didn't really feel discrimination all that much but I still felt it. You know, mm. I personally didn't feel it, but I could see, I could see around me the insecurity. And you know, I fought for my position. Um, the older I get, I see a different type of discrimination against um, women as you get older. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the two the obstacles that got in my way from probably even powering along more was um, 
one was called Marty and the other was called Alex, <laughs> our son. So yeah. I, you might allude to that um, later on, you know, we might discuss that. But having kids, you know, was a change for me because mm. because I was raised in such a great um, family environment and it was an extended family with both sets of grandparents and one set living with us. Um, you know, I felt I wanted to give my kids what I loved and that was... Um, time in the family they talk about time in the markets yeah for me it was time in the family with my kids so that that took both Pete and I and Peter too it wasn't just me yeah. a decision on a maybe um a path that we took a bit slower more than anything we we're still on the same path we just we just dialed the pace down you know to very slow because the, um, our boys were super important to us yeah or still are sometimes <laughs> so in mention of his name so Maureen's uh husband is Peter Switzer the uh Australian financial commentator and economist so just to put that in context when you did have children what compromises did you have to make in that sense I think the big compromise for me Claire was that I realized that for me you know that's this is not me saying that how everyone should act but for me to be say a barrister or a judge I knew something, you know, something's got to give, you know. And so for me, it was, and dad had Parkinson's disease. Mum was getting on in years. Um, you know, Peter had lost his dad um, early as well. And so I thought, I can have this fabulous career. But, um, you know, as I said, a lot of read a lot of books, read a lot of poetry. And I thought, but at what cost? You know, will I regret? And uh, je ne regret rien. And, uh, and um, I, um, I just made the decision that really led Peter and I into starting our own business because Pete was an academic at the University of New South Wales. You know, I'm a, you know, youngish solicitor wanting to really, you know, spread my wings at the bar because I'm a bit of a show-off. But um, it just didn't work for me. Um, You know, I found pregnancy, you know, pretty difficult. Um, You know, uh, it wasn't the easiest nine months of my life. you know, the first 12 months of raising a child, whoo, you know, mm. God, I'm, um, you know, I'm certainly, you know, not able to, you know, go outside the courtroom and breastfeed and stuff yeah. like that. It wasn't for me. So we changed our life significantly. That's when we really opened up a business. Yeah. And we thought, well, we sat down and kind of had a serious delirious talk and thought, okay, we slow our life down. We have this business. Um, it's different nowadays. You know, mm. there wasn't maternity um, leave, you know, and, uh, and, uh, they're available for women. You know, it would, it would have been tough. And you know, my parents weren't in a situation health-wise. Um, they did help. My goodness, they helped, but not to the extent that they, you know, would have liked to. And so what Peter really did then was um, he started more or less fronting, you know, the media with the voice and the look um, of, you know, our business. And I would do all the backup work behind the scenes in between, you know, night feeds and you know, screaming kids and stuff. Yeah. And then Al came along and we were all in the swing of it by then and it just seemed to work for us. Yeah. Um, one thing that always attracted me to Peter, it wasn't his fortune, um, I didn't, <laughs> didn't marry him for his money. I mean, we've obviously, you know, made money over the years, but um, he was he's just superbly... I, saw, I used to see him when we were young, we met at university, and uh, he used to play with kids in a way. I can still see the picture now. You know, I was the youngest kid, so, you know, I never had babies really in my life until my nieces and nephews came along. Yeah. I didn't have younger brothers and sisters. So, But I saw this beautiful way that Pete used to be with kids, and I thought, hmm, 
don't know if I'm, I'm ever going to marry you, but um, if I didn't have kids, at least I'm seeing what you'd be like. And yeah. he, he's fabulous with children and not really getting off the scene because this is important for women, you know, that they have a partner who shares that with them from the word go. Mm. And I know the other day um, our sons are wonderful with their short, young, very young children. And I said to Marty, um, you're a good dad, Marty. And he said, had a good role model, mum. Oh. You know, so that's the kind of stuff that I think is really important Definitely. to build up because a lot of women, they feel laboured by, you know, going to work and then going home and you're splitting yourself. But it is a partnership. Yeah. You, know, you marry, it's a partnership. You split the work. Exactly. 50-50. Mm. Um, so you were blazing this trail, along came motherhood, and since then you've successfully kept carving out a different trail in the business world which I'm sure comes with a ton of life lessons, business lessons and money lessons. What has been the greatest obstacle there? Um, well, there's always, anyone that's run a business, there's always challenges. I mean, um, well, you, you're part of our team, Claire, so you know what value I put on having a great team. Yes. To get a great team, it takes a lot of work. Um, we're people, there used to be an Arnott's Biscuit ad and there's no substitute for quality. You know, <laughs> I know. Beautiful it. parrot, yeah, yeah, you remember? And uh, I always remember that um, tagline. And, uh, and for me, when it comes to a team, there is no substitute for quality. Um, I, you, you would know this, you know, I get a feeling about people. Mm. I'm yet to be proved um, wrong. Um, things can change, but... Uh, I know when I see quality people and I want them on my team, but when you're looking for quality, see if you mass produce things, it's assembly line, it's quick, anyone's replaceable. So a business like ours, I know the brand is, you know, strong and big and respected, but the business isn't as big as the brand because when you're doing anything with quality, for me, I'm building um, a cathedral, you know, I'm, I'm creating a masterpiece and that means it takes time. Yeah. And so, you know, for, for, to get people to, you know, be part of your, your masterpiece or to get people to help you build the cathedral, you've got to get the right people with the right attitude. And so the obstacle to us growing faster has been this thing that's been embedded in me is quality is really important and mm. that goes on all levels. And, uh, and so... Quality, yes. Hmm. Um, so what would be your most valuable investment that you've made? Um, oh, Peter would love me to say marrying him. Oh, <laughs> hell, that was hard work. Um, I, um, the most valuable investment, isn't it funny? We were living in London, um, two young people, wonderful time in the 70s. It wasn't, um, oh, God, what job will I get? It's almost like, was like, which job should mm. I choose? You know, maybe someone in your era, you've had a been, you know, um, working through a period of great, you know, um, prosperity, but you've um, come through, you know, a period like we all have in the world of a thing called COVID-19. Yes. And, you know, and it's a, a threat then, you know, to your livelihood. But here we were, we were in this golden era of the 70s and, uh, you know, travelling overseas, sucking in life, you know, doing wonderful things. And we realised that, uh-oh, I don't want to be a solicitor um, or in that academic world, neither did Peter. So we thought, oh, even before we had the kids, we were thinking we've got to do something different. And we went in, we didn't have a lot of money, um, but we went in and we saw this fabulous blue portable typewriter <laughs> and uh, 
it was a tiny little thing. It was like I love my apple, you know, and it was like, you know, staring through the window the way you see the crowds amassed to the apple stores. Yeah. And it was some vastly vast amount of five pound. And we looked at each other. We didn't even say, you know, just complete look and we just looked, our eyes said, we're going to buy that. And, uh, and so that was our, I know that sounds a funny thing, but that was our first investment wow. in our business. And we still have it. Yeah. Um, it was a portable typewriter. It was actually designed by somebody that, I'll tell you later, but it's a fabulous um, Italian designer and uh, who I absolutely love. He did a lot of work uh, for Olivetti designing it and I came to learn that he'd actually designed that typewriter. So it's not worth much, but it is a little bit of a collector's piece. But um, So that investment really put us on the path to running our own business. What would you say has been the the biggest obstacle to your success? For me... um, the balance between, you know, raising the kids the way we wanted to and doing the business um, to make it sustainable and give us a lifestyle. Um, Again, we were very lucky, you know, we were two young people that just happened to love communicating with people. Um, Both had this kind of ability, I think, to translate information. So we don't like to cloud people in mystery with words or terms or confuse people. Peter's, Peter's got a gift, you know, um, um, at doing that, you know. There's, I'll give him that. But, uh, but um, the obstacle was always, you know, having enough money, you know, to grow the business, you know, stretching, you know, you buy a house like most people do and, you know, or try to do when they have a family and... and um, Cash was a major obstacle, you know, many times. Um, and we didn't really want to share, you know, um, or sell the part of the business. It still wasn't at a stage. We didn't even think about stuff like that. But but um, time can be an obstacle. How did you find this niche within finance media? Um, it was largely because we'd been... We had a bit of a reputation that time. I mean... You know, we were working, I was doing country radio, some afternoon radio on Triple M. Peter was working a lot on Triple M and increasingly, you know, was doing, you know, more broadcasting and writing in newspapers. We were doing guides to help students. We saw an inequity in schools where a lot of the private schools and even knowing friends that had their kids there, we knew that a lot of them, the kids were getting, you know, really fabulous information and some of the state schools that we saw, particularly in the western inner city, you know, kids were you know, not getting quite what they needed for their year 12. And mm-hmm. uh, so we set up these things called, they were the first, first ever um, guides for the HSC. Oh, wow. And uh, we used to sell those every year to um, News Corporation and they were a big success. So we were coming up with all these innovations and ideas. The obstacle was when I said to you before that my mum was absolutely fantastic and will always, you know, hold a pivotal role in um, my life. Mm. Um, neither mum or dad were risk takers. I mean, for goodness sake, dad was an engineer. Mm. And, um, and mum, they didn't like taking risks. And so an obstacle for me is, was risk. Yeah, uh, learning to take those risks. Learning to take them, exactly, Claire. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that running a business yourself and moving away from that security of paid employment, that's a huge risk. Absolutely, you know? yeah. But we did that. Um, and we did that because we had a higher priority with the kids, mm. being, wanting to be with them. But to take a risk and invest money, take on staff, you know, get external premises, we did all that step by step. But, you know, it, it was hard hard for me in particular. Not so much Pete, but yeah. hard for me. And, um, 
And then what we did, though, was we tried to find books about running a small business or running a business from home, setting up a bigger business, taking on people. And there weren't any out there, so we thought, here we go, we'll write them. Yeah. So we wrote magazines, we wrote books, and and then the reputation started spreading and I got a phone call out of the blue one day. Um, do you ever, you know those dummies guides? To, yes, you know, yeah. Well, there's an American equivalent. Well, dummies is American anyway, but called the Idiot's Guide, mm. you know, and... Some person at the end said, oh, look, you've come highly recommended, you know, Peter, Peter Switzer and um, for writing The Idiot's Guide to Getting Rich. I shouldn't say write it, to adapt it to Australia. Right. And money in America is a little bit different to here. You know, we call it superannuation. They call it 401k. So you can't just land an American book um, onto the Australian market. And money's hard enough to understand in Australian language than yeah. American. So we had to... Um, uh, changed the terminology, had little case studies, you know, Betty Sue, you know, well, no one here is called, or certainly, you know, in the 80s they weren't called Betty Sue. So we had to do, you know, change the names of people to anglicise them more or Australianise them, I should say. And in doing that, um, I decided that I'd do all those, you know, more technical admin sides of the work um, because that's a bit of a strength. But... But I called people. They gave me a list of people for the case studies and I called them. I think I called about 15 people, um, maybe 20, and I'd say 10 of them, 10 of the 15, easily um, said to me at the end, it was all about like, oh, you've inherited $50,000. You know, what would you do with it? You know, how do you get rich out of an inheritance? And so I'm writing up their case study. They're all really nice people. So at the end of it, they'd say to me, oh, you sound so nice, you know, and thank you so much. I didn't give any advice because I'm legally trained enough. No, you don't, you can't give it. But, um, oh, look, I've just been given $250,000. If I give that to you, will you look after it for me? Oh. No, I can see the look on your face. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like I'd say, oh, no, please. You know, look, I am a really nice person, but don't you, know, you don't, your... do not do that. So... Yeah. And this whole world of financial advice started opening up to us. Mm. And so I'd ring around Peter and say, who are financial advisors? You know, like I'm talking about probably the early, well, late 1990s. Um, and Pete said, oh, look, I've heard of a couple of names, you know. And so I'd ring them all back and say, look, here are three names, you know, that I don't know these people. Yeah. Call them. But if you get that gut feeling, you know, that, you know, don't give them your money, you know, whatever – um, call me back, you know, and I'll give you another three, you yeah. know, and, uh, and I wouldn't have wanted to feel anyway, you know, responsible for people losing their money and the way I could have had a fortune. Um, <laughs> but um, so that really opened up. Pete and I sat down and we'd go out and people would say to Peter, oh, will you look after my money for me, you know? Wow. And so there's obviously a trust element yeah. that we emanate, but we didn't have a, a license. And so... My nephew came to me one day, Mark, and we had a lot to do with his upper, um, upbringing and, um, and he was staying with us at the time and he'd just finished his university course and he said to me, um, I don't know really what I want to do. He said, I don't want to do town planning. And I said, funny you say that, Mark, because I've just been reading the Fin Review and there's a job that um, NAB, for NAB, you know, National Australia Bank, they're wanting financial advisors and uh, they're prepared to take graduates and train them. And I said, he said, oh, that sounds interesting. Why did you pick that? And I said, because I helped raise you, you know. You've been counting money since as long as I can remember and you're tight, you know. And, uh, 
And so I think you'd be good at it. And so he went and got the job and they trained him. And that's when the whole world of financial advice started opening up to us. And Mark would say to us, sometimes I'm not quite sure what to say to people. So I actually throw in that I'm Peter Switzer's nephew and people go, oh, I listen to him or I read him. And so the whole world changes. And he said, have you two ever thought of, you know, having a financial advice business? And uh, so that's really how the advice part started, how the money information started growing and then eventually, like you know now, Tilly came about. exactly. Mm. Mm. Um, So after all of these milestones of your life, of of starting a business, having children, and knowing what you know now, Mm. what more is there that that you are kind of seeking knowledge for about finance? Oh, knowledge is a life quest, um, you know, for all of us um, in various ways. in terms of, I don't ever pretend to understand, you know, um, everything at this stage. And I was sharing a conversation with you and the team only the other day. Um, I had a few shares, you know, we used a broker. Um, and then I started doing um, what we know as, and I'm not, I'll throw in a free plug here. We do an investment newsletter called The Switzer Report. And... I, because of my publishing background, you know, I'm pretty good at editing and this time I was just editing, well, I was really only proofreading the report because it's quite complicated. I thought it was at the time. And I was doing that um, probably for about 12 months and then Peter kept on hearing this comment I'd make of, I can't go, I've got to do the Switzer report. And, he, you know, it was becoming increasing. He said, what do you mean you can't go, you've got to do it? Can't someone, no, I've got to do it. Because I didn't realise at the time that I was getting addicted to the information oh. that I was getting from the report. And, you know, we've got great writers in it. Um, Peter, Paul Ricard, who um, was the founding CEO of um, Comsec, and uh, who's our business partner, and... Um, and then Tony Featherston and um, and James Dunn, their finance writers, Charlie Aitken. We've got all these great people with all this great knowledge about an area that I'd had exposure to but didn't really understand. And and so um, I just started thinking, God, I've got to put this information into action. You know, so we use the broker and we run our own self-managed super fund. But I thought, I really like this. And I'm just lucky enough to have a little pocket tiny pocket of gold and so I set up some Comsec accounts you know so I thought I'm going to go online and just use this as my my um, trading money and um, and I wanted to set up a trust for my grandchildren as well because Paul had always written these articles about you know investing for your grandchildren I yeah. thought I've got to be practical mm. and uh, and that exposed me to this world of buying shares I haven't sold any yet but in the last probably six months in particular I've started you know really doing the strategic work behind shares and purchasing and selling. Not because I want to get into trading or anything like that, but this information that I learn about share trading has just opened. I've loved property, Claire, all my life. I've mm. loved it and I you know, love renovating houses, but I've kind of kept that other asset class called shares separate. I absolutely love it. Yeah. You know, I, I you know, have a portfolio now as really bad as we know that COVID-19 is and all the damage it's done, I've come into a, you know, pretty good market to buy into. So yes. it's going to be an interesting time. It is an opportunity right now. Well, it's, not, it's going to be an opportunity for a couple of years yeah. because shares go through about a 10-year cycle where they keep rising. So you, you may not be able to get in today. Mm-hmm. You should have really got in around March 20. 
you know, when there were bargains and whether or not that'll hit lows again, that's, you know, who knows that for sure. But, you know, buying for the next couple of years is going to be interesting and you've got to take some risks, but, uh, you know, I told you I'm getting better at that. So I've got so you know what I've known? My dad used to say to me, he used to quote something and it said from a very wise, wise man, very learned man, and he said, it's in knowing so much I've come to know how little I do know. And that's what I'm realising, that the more I get excited about all of these doors that are opening, the more I think, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, there's so much to learn. Yes. And, and in some, t- some areas like shares, I'm starting out. You know, I've, I know stuff, but I'm, to be, I'm actually starting out, you know. Mm. To, it's one thing to know, it's another thing to act. And it's a, a common thing we, we speak about at, at Tilly is that a lot of the time it's just an issue of exposure. Totally. All the women that work here, they've, we've become exposed to financial matters and the share market and that's motivated us to become involved in these aspects mm. because we finally know about it, you get excited about it and you want to become involved. Totally. Whereas a lot of the formats have been geared towards males and for some reason – we might not have just picked it up before, but now mm. we're surrounded by it and mm. it's, it's purely ex- exposure, isn't it? Totally, and you're mm. all swimming with it, you know. Yeah. But um, all you've got to do is do a dive in and, mm. yes. and that's all what life is, it's exposure, mm. yeah. And so just quickly to, to wrap up, did you have any last tips or tricks for finances or managing your money? The general kind of things, um, I think that these are going to form lots of the podcasts that we're going to do in Tilly as well because... I mean, there's no like one tip or one trick that will suit all. But I think for me, Claire, and you know this comes out in the meetings that we all do, is that never be afraid to ask dumb questions. You know, never be afraid to say, I don't know what the ASX 200 is because there was a time when I didn't know what it was either. Yeah. And I swear to you, in any group, I don't care who they are, they can be CEOs of the top, the ASX top 200 companies in Australia, and I would say to them men and women, what's the ASX 200? <laughs> now, you never be feel um, that you can't ask a dumb question because that's the way to learn is through mm. questioning. And, uh, and when you start asking questions about money, one question leads to answer leads to more knowledge leads to another question. It's always the smart person who asks questions. Best advice. Mm. And do you have any money rituals? Oh, well, I do do things that um, my bank probably hates me because um, I don't use debt unless it's, um, it's good debt, you know, that, uh, that, and we can explain in Tilly, you know, what's the difference between good debt and bad debt. So if I do go all um, silly and buy some fantastic clothing, Claire, I <laughs> make sure that I pay it off at the end of the month. You know, I, um, ridiculous credit card interest rates aren't something, you know, that, uh, that I like. But we're going, in Tilly, we're going to do so many things that will open up this whole world of money to people like me who know a bit, people like yourself who know a bit as well but are so keen to build on that knowledge. And I think we can answer all those money questions that will just build this wealth of knowledge, you know, this tower of information with women like me hopefully can inspire other women um, and there's a lot of women out um, like me who you know that um, when we approach people about Tilly, they just love the idea and, um, you know, happy to share their time and their knowledge. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's not about 
money for money's sake. I saw in my family, because of the neighbourhood I grew up in, that when you don't have money, mum and dad used everything that they could, so they never went to anyone, never got into financial trouble or anything because they were sensible, but they didn't have a lot. But around me there were people who you saw that money limited their choices, you know, and they made wrong decisions and they couldn't get out of jams and they did things then that, you know, let... You know, some of them even ended up in the slammer, you know, because, you know, they were on the wrong road. And money's not something that you should worship, you know. Money's not something that you should chase. Um, but money is something that if you succeed in understanding money in life, it opens up choices for you. And what a wonderful thing it is to have choice. Definitely. What better way to end our conversation? Thank you so much, Maureen. My absolute pleasure, Claire. Talk to you soon. Bye. That was Maureen Jordan, founder and CEO of Tilly Money. Your host this week was Claire Osman, and thank you to Ixon for our intro music last summer. <laughs>